Inverse Genius Episode 10, Yojo. In this episode, Eric talks with Chaz Marler from Paradise Paradise, all about G.I. Joe. The toys, the cartoons, the comic books, especially the comic books. And when this episode is done, you will know, and knowing is half the battle. Inverse Genius is sponsored by our fantastic Patreons at patreon.com slash obg. So head on over there and check us out. Also, spread the word about the Inverse Genius Podcast. Thanks. Welcome to another exciting episode of Inverse Genius. I'm Eric Dewey, your host. You can find me at ericdewey.com or as Eric, A-Y-R-K, pretty much everywhere except Twitter. Twitter, I'm Eric Lamastra. Um, I am just really pumped and excited about this episode, and I have found someone who is just as pumped and excited about it as well. So let me introduce the amazing Paradise... Dice Paradise Man, Chaz Marler. <laughs> Hello there. Whoever I am, I am super excited to be here, Eric. This is a subject that has been uh, near and dear to my heart uh, as long as I can remember being on this earth. Absolutely. And so the subject we are talking about is none other than G.I. Joe. Woohoo! So let's just jump in real quick with some brief history, and then we'll get into to some great stuff. So G.I. Joe was originally a about a 12-inch tall action figure. In fact, I think it coined the action figure um, name. Uh, Hasbro was the person who, who was the company that created it originally, and it was four guys, one for each branch of the service, and they'd go off and, and have adventures and fight. Um, Later on, as the Vietnam War kind of got less tasteful, or not tasteful, but as the public liked war less, they changed from uh, like a war fitting to an adventure team. So they'd go hunting and and do all kinds of stuff like that. And in fact, I remember as a small child, I had a G.I. Joe playset where he was hunting a rhino and it was a Jeep and all this stuff. And I had another one where it was a helicopter and there was a, a cobra and like a hidden treasure kind of thing. So it was this this big adventure kind of thing. I don't suppose you encountered any of that as you, as a child. I think I'm a wee bit older than you, but not much. Yeah, I just missed the 12-inch figure phase. Um, the uh, the second line, the three and three-quarter or so tall figures, mm-hmm. those came out right when I was in about first to second grade. So that was my first introduction to G.I. Joe, and those got me hook, line, and sinker. Perfect. Yeah, so those came out, started in 1982. It was mm-hmm. a real American hero line. And I was, let me think here, probably fifth or sixth grade. Okay. So I was sort of phasing out of toys, but as we'll talk, there was another hook that just grabbed me and dropped me in Hmm. (laughs) deeply. (laughs) Um, And so, yeah, so these guys, these were the 3.75 inch, which of course, Star Wars really popular, made popular. Mm -hmm. The whole reason that happened was because how are you going to make an X-Wing that can fit a 12 inch figure? (laughs) So so they shrunk them down to 375, uh, which meant for G.I. Joe uh, that there was all kinds of neat and exciting um, figures that you could have in those those particular scales. 
mm-hmm. uh, figures and vehicles, I should say. So let's talk about. So the, the the big focus on this is going to be the real American Hero series, and so these were toys that were from about eighty two to around ninety four. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's let's talk about these guys. So what was what was cool about these action figures? Oh my goodness! The what was really cool about these action figures to me was just uh, for one thing. There was something about that size, the the portability, and then just the versatility of what you could do with them, and the fact that each character had a different specialty and look to them. You know, you you could you could instantly identify, you know, with one of them, and it would become your favorite. And no matter where he landed in the ranking of all the characters, you know, he was your leader and your guy you always you know you always used. And um, that's was one of the things that instantly drew me in. In was all of that. Yeah, definitely. So the G.I. Joe Real American Hero was conceived as more of a team. Mm-hmm. And so originally, I want to say there was a dozen of them. And between the two of us, I bet we could name them all. Um, <laughs> I, I so bet we could. <laughs> I bet we could, yeah. So we had Grunt, right? He was the uh, toting seemed, an M16 infantry guy. He was the, he was the infantry man, uh, yes. And he seemed to be the most generic of just uh, you know template uh, soldier. Uh, there was Flash, the laser trooper, Stalker, yep. the ranger, uh, Scarlet, of course. Um, and then there was um, the vamp jeep that came with clutch clutch yep yeah um, i'm sorry don't let me hog all of the no, first no, series characters going, here keep going <laughs> <laughs> oh zap the bazooka soldier oh yeah yeah and uh short fuse uh who had the mortar he had the mortar uh-huh and breaker uh, was the communication oh, guy of course yes breaker yes and um always chewed bubble gum as bubble well gum. Yeah, yeah um let's see here so we got on the cobra side oh. they had the cobra officer with the sniper rifle then they had the cobra soldier with the ak-47 mm-hmm. and cobra of course was the bad guy the ruthless terrorist organization bent on destroying american america and its american way ah, remember when i just mentioned that there was always one character that you identified most closely with uh-huh. <laughs> guess on everyone heroes and villains who it was for me <laughs> <laughs> Would that be Snake Eyes? <laughs> oh, still, we can't forget Snake Eyes. I, I was the, wondering about Snake Eyes, oh, yeah. So, yeah, so see, I am, I think, an anomaly um, in the world of G.I. Joe. Snake Eyes was nowhere, I'd say, not even in my top five favorite characters. But he was, of course, by far the most popular with uh, you know, with with everyone else, with the population. Um, I appreciated Snake Eyes. I thought he was uh-huh. a fascinating character, the way they wrote him. And he had a completely distinctive look from everyone else. Um, but I, my, my favorite uh, to this day still actually is just Cobra Commander. Cobra Commander, yeah. Yes, Cobra Commander. <laughs> he, was, he was awesome. And the thing was is he didn't come out for a while. No. Because uh, he wasn't in the first batch. It was like the second or third batch before he finally – he was actually a, a giveaway at first, I think, oh. if you – yeah, when he finally came out, it was like this big special event almost, you know, in Kid World where <gasps> Cobra Commander is finally available. Yeah. Um, and hooded Cobra Commander, I oh. actually saved up flag points, which were the little proof of purchase <laughs> symbols on the back of the uh, packages for the, the figures came in. I saved up these flag points for several months and sent away for the super mega exclusive hooded Cobra Commander. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, um. No, the, and that was the, the only thing I never understood about Cobra Commander was um, here's this leader of this ruthless terrorist organization who wants to inspire fear. So he chooses a powder blue suit. That's not the only thing that's going to be interesting about Cobra, especially <laughs> when we delve into the uh, comic books. But uh, yeah. So the other thing that was great 
the the thing that I loved was the the detail on the weapons and the information about the weapons was phenomenal. I mean, Snake Eyes Uzi looked exactly like an Uzi. That's true. Um, you're looking at Stalker's HK assault rifle. You're like, oh man, this thing is so cool looking, and and each one of those was highly detailed. And even Zaps, uh, not Zaps, uh, Flash's laser. Yes. While being totally fantasy, you know, he's got a little backpack and a wire connecting it. So mm-hmm. I mean, it really seemed realistic. Um, you mentioned the Star Wars figures too, and I always felt that compared to uh, the the Star Wars versus the GI Joe, I always felt that the GI Joe characters had more detailed sculpts and, and such. It seemed like definitely, uh, mm-hmm. um, you could put their helmets on and off. Yep. they certainly had more points of articulation, yes. which was pretty cool too. Yeah, oh, when they introduced the swivel arm kung fu grip, yeah, that, yeah, that was like a new awakening in my mind. It's like, oh my goodness, like I can never go back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know Luke's arms just making this robotic up and down, whereas you know Clutches has got this pistol and he's shooting around a corner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and, and some you mentioned the Vamp, which was the Jeep with the twin guns on the back, and and I mean some of those vehicles were so cool. I had the uh, Ram, the motorcycle with the Gatling gun sidecar. <laughs> mm-hmm. mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think we both had the jump jet, which was the backpack. Uh, yes. Um, in fact, the, the uh, flash, the laser trooper, and the little um, extra accessory set that had the computer with the jetpack, uh, those were the very first G.I. Joe toys uh, that I, I got. Um, I was at my grandma's house during the summer, and she took me down to the store and uh, picked those up for me. And I played with them all day, all week, and you know, through the rest of my entire childhood until I got <laughs> almost till I got married. Um, <laughs> not quite that long, but <laughs> yep, yep, but yep. So yeah, it was so cool, and it was all with a realm of believability. So like the jump pack itself, you know, isn't very believable in real life, but they made it with enough design and look to it. That it, that it was realistic. And then when you compare it to something like Hawk, who had the surface-to-air missile launcher, mm-hmm. which is actually uh, something I can't remember which one it is, but it was an actual surface-to-air missile launcher that the U.S. Army uses. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was just a toy based, designed entirely on an actual thing. And, and uh, so you can kind of have fake and real next to each other, and they both really blend in quite well. Yes, they did a very good job with uh, with combining the fantasy with the reality and, and keeping it grounded um, in the figure line for a very, very long time. Yeah, yeah. And uh, oh, and the last thing I always loved was in the back of the the card that the car- the uh, figure came in. They had their dossier, and it told you their real name, and it told you their their rank, and what they were good at, and. Oh, man. Yeah, I remember pouring over those little dossier cards and, like, the characters that their name was classified. Right. I, re- I remember just sitting there just, you know, wondering, imagining, what could it be? You know, why is this so secret? You know, <laughs> who is this person and, and what could their backstory actually be? And just being totally just, in, you know, uh, just wrapped up in, in that whole train of thought. <laughs> Definitely. And the art, the the paintings of the characters on the cards, like Scarlet's, was so phenomenally good. You're looking at, you know, this, I mean, she was a pretty woman, but she had the crossbow and she had a pistol kind of inside her arm and the padding and, and just all this kind of stuff. Or you look at uh, Snake Eyes, who's, you know, squatting down, firing off his, his Uzi. I'm trying to think of some of the other ones. Um, but, I mean, the art was there. I mean, that just jump-started a, a, you know, 10, 11, 12-year-old kid's brain like nobody's business. Oh, yeah, it, it definitely did. Um, I remember, um, you know, after the first wave, um, 
it was the second or third wave um, when they started you know, doing more and more, uh, you know, less just green and khaki outfits and stuff and actually really starting to experiment with the design of the characters. Uh, I remember the first one that his picture, on, his painting on the, you know, the box and the character himself was airborne, the paratrooper, oh, yeah, and yeah. he broke the mold. Um, his picture was him repel, like you know, um, coming down like on top of you almost. That was his picture on the packaging. It's like, whoa, this is totally a different look. And he, you know, he was wearing more of the, the khaki with the padded suits. He had a different type of helmet. And I remember um, with that wave, uh, just a, you know, it was like a whole new um, rediscovery of the characters because they, you know, again were keeping it ground in reality for the most part but they were pushing the envelope in terms of design you know at least to you know a, a nine-year-old's point of view um, right right <laughs> but um, it again captured the imagination exactly uh, as time progressed and we'll, we'll get into this a little bit more but they definitely got much much more colorful <laughs> uh, yeah <laughs> As the uh, as the figures got successful, I mean Hasbro was just pumping these out, and so uh, I, I really remember, of course, mm-hmm. the Dreadnoughts and a bunch of other things. It got it got very very colorful. Yes, it it did. Um, uh, it it got to the point where um, you you yep. had characters <laughs> that were wearing you know bright neon green into battle, exactly, and, and you had to start yeah. to wonder, oh, oh rock really? and Is that roll the best was an <laughs> important figure we forgot about. M sixty, yeah. The M16 yep. gunner, yeah, the bandolier of bullets on it. M60 figure. gunner, yes, that's right. Yes. All right. So, yeah. so the figures in the in the stuff yeah. were cool, but yeah. what just grabbed me by the throat and just wouldn't let go was the GI Joe comic book by Marvel. Oh boy, howdy! That um, yes, and that was the number one selling comic um, for quite a while when it was in its. Oh, I'd say from its uh, its launch through the 30s or 40s of of, of the issue count, um, it was quite popular. Yeah. Absolutely. Definitely was. Um, of course, Marvel had had a pretty good success with the Star Wars comic book, uh, and so it didn't seem to be too big of a leap for uh, Hasbro to approach them to do another comic book. And they had also had some reasonable success with the Micronauts comic. So, but none of those, I think, were as nearly as successful as mm-hmm. the GI Joe comic. And a lot of that has to do with Larry now, Hama himself. I, I may- I may be wrong, but I seem to recall the story where Larry Hama wanted to just – he wanted to revitalize Sergeant Rock or just another military comic. And then the license for G.I. Joe came along and he was like, OK, yeah, I'll make it G.I. Joe. And, and, and so the initial conception for the series was just not necessarily to be a G.I. Joe comic but a war story and they just tied that in which again helped to keep the stories grounded in reality a little bit more than just – to be a commercial for toys, at least at first. And I may be completely wrong, but I, I remember hearing that story. And again, that might just be, you know, kid hyperbole, hyperbole, you know, psyching each other up. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, I, uh, I don't doubt it because one of the things that was very important was the grounding in as much reality as possible in the, in the comics. And the, the big struggle as the comic went on was, A, the popularity of the line, mm-hmm. B, the fact that Hasbro had to keep pushing out new figures, Mm -hmm. and then C, as they kept pushing out figures, the actual quality of those figures started to be uh, questionable from a story uh, standpoint. Um, Certainly when we get to Serpentor and, you know, Dr. Mindbender and some of those guys, uh, I really kind of felt for Larry Hama, who wrote almost every issue. Mm -hmm. 
um, you know, how am I going to fit these guys into the story? Yeah, there did come a point with the comics where it did seem to transition into, um, you know, you turn the page and then a new character walks on the scene and it's, oh, hey, character name, you're here now. You know, turn the next page. Oh, look, it's yep. new character name. And it's like, oh, and um, it did seem like in the the 70s, 80s, 90s of, of the series is at least in my point of view, when it started to kind of degrade from story-driven to more toy-driven in terms of motivation. Exactly. I mean, uh, you know, some of those original guys like Grunt and Zap Mm -hmm. and uh, Short Fuse, they all got written they they got to have a goodbye but they sort of got written out of the stories i remember there was a an issue where grunt specifically um retired or whatever yep. the term is when he was uh yeah when he he went back home uh, i remember reading reading that one going whoa they actually got rid of a character um yeah and and then and this is the part that was really kind of surprising and impressive is they killed characters uh in fact doc i think was one of the characters that got killed oh now, see, that I, like an, that I missed. Yeah, there's, there's a handful. And part of the reason they got killed was because, you know, we had the doc figure who was the medic. Mm-hmm. Now we have, I don't Life, remember, lifeline. bandages. Lifeline, that's it. Yes. So now we have a new guy, basically fulfills the same role, but now we have to use him in the stories. And truth to be told, doc didn't show up a whole lot. But so, uh, yeah, there were, there were a couple of characters who, who, actual action figure characters, not just ones made up for the book, who... Uh, who didn't make it. Uh, now, what was your... Um, now, I jumped into the G.I. Joe comic um, with issue number 28. Um, w- okay. Where did you come into it at? I jumped in in issue number 11, uh-huh. which was an interesting one because that was the first issue where they introduced the Wave 2 characters. Oh, yes, yes. And, um, oh, that's the one with uh, Doc and Snowjob. Um, yep. And what's really interesting about that... Uh, that's one of the. Uh, it's one th- maybe the only issue, but they actually ran ads on television for issue number yes. eleven of GI Joe. Uh, exactly, I remember seeing that on the. And this just dovetailed perfectly because I had just started getting into comics as well, and so I saw that and I'm like, oh man, this looks cool. Mm-hmm. And uh, what what sold it on me was so Snow Jobs, this guy with a, uh, a snowmobile, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And the uh, the Cobra has got them pinned down, and so. Hawk, who's telling him, all right, Snowjob, you need to go bust through the line and get to the next point. Uh, we'll hold him off here, and and I'm going to take Snake, you know, you take Snake Eyes with you. And they, the bad guys had an RPG that they were just hammering with, and Hawk's like, oh, and by the way, neutralize that RPG as well. And so off they go, and he guns the snowmobile, leaps over, Snake Eyes reaches down, grabs the RPG as it's flying over the troops, and lands, and they take off. And they're like, one of the guys is like, he didn't just... Uh, neutralize it he confiscated it like oh man these guys are so cool let's go (laughs) oh yeah there was always something in each each issue it seemed um number 28 which was my first one Uh, again my i was visiting my grandma during the summer she took me down to the grocery store and they had the old school comic book racks and she's like pick out a comic and i picked out this one and uh what hooked me about on number 28 was uh, it's where they uh, I don't know if it was the introduction of the Rattler but basically the mm-hmm. big I think it was okay the big blue tank buster uh, plane, bomber plane that Cobra had um, so the, the the Rattler's going after this tank that G.I. Joe had and it has these you know heat seeking missiles and the tank is stuck 
Um, I don't know if it was out of fuel or what, but it's stuck next to this lake. So the guys and the, the plane's barreling in towards the tank and the guys start bailing water out of the lake onto the tank to cool its engines down yes, enough. I remember that. And it's just, you know, the plane's coming in, coming in, they're bailing water. And all of a sudden it shows the, the plane's radar with the tank and all of a sudden bloop, it disappears because they got it cool enough <laughs> and they escape. And it was just like, whoa, they, you know, they thought to do that as a story plot point. That was just amazing. Um, and I was yes. hooked at that point on. Wow, and you just missed the big because issues twenty six, twenty six mm. really, and twenty six and twenty seven mm-hmm. were really big. Mm-hmm. They um, were. I, I know those were ones that were talked about for years. It seemed. Yes. Um, so what we're talking about is the character of Snake Eyes. So the cool thing about Snake Eyes, and I was always wondering if this was the plan from the beginning because I'm guessing it wasn't. Uh, you know, they made the figure, and he's got this cool mask, mm-hmm. but that's it. But Snake Eyes never talked. He he was mute. Mm-hmm. And so for twenty, you know, for two years, you're like, what, you know, what's going on? And he had a relationship with Scarlet. You never knew what was going on. Um, there was a phenomenal issue twenty one, uh, which was a pretty brown- groundbreaking issue because no spoke spoken word was in the entire comic. Yeah, and that is um, kind of a showcase not only of GI Joe comics but in comics in general. That story with no dialogue, um, I've seen that mentioned um, in other places about comics as an example of just an incredible comic story, an incredible issue of anything that's been produced. Definitely. And so uh, in that case, uh, uh, Snake Eyes had to go rescue Scarlet from Cobra's base uh, I think it was Storm Shadow who was the Cobra Ninja. Mm-hmm. Now, again, 80s, so it's going to get ninja ninja crazy here it's after a little while. Ninja thick. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Uh, and so he had to go rescue Scarlet. And, you know, the whole thing was this big mounting of a rescue, and it was all quiet. But issue 26 was, we're going to reveal the secrets of Snake Eyes. And so you learn his story, his whole backstory, how he became a ninja, how he, why he doesn't speak. I mean, everything about him, except what he looks like um, and how he knows things, his relationship to Storm Shadow. And that story is going to basically continue through the entire run of the comics for the most part. Mm -hmm. It really ushered in kind of the underlying theme for the rest of the entire series. Yes. And uh, I don't know about you, but so so Snake Eyes is part of this very select uh, ninja clan mm-hmm. that Storm Shadow was part of. And they had this these uh, lines sort of tattooed mm. on their arms. Yes. Yep. Two dots, a straight line, two dots, a straight line, two dots, a straight line, something like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so I don't know about you, but there was a period of time in middle school where I <laughs> had some of that drawn on my arm. <laughs> I'm going to plead the fifth on that one. <laughs> I can't. Uh, so the, I, oh, sorry, I, I can't remember no, what that clan was called. But whenever I hear the name, it's like, oh yeah, that that was the clan name. But um, off the top of my head, I'm sorry, I, I can't quite recall what it was called. Um, yeah, it started with an S, I think. Something like yeah, S or a K um, or something. Yeah, but, yeah, but yeah, I'm with you completely. It's that's that's that word. Yeah. Yep. Um, <laughs> so the other the other thing. That I thought so. So they got these characters that you're really involved in. There's some really great storylines early in the run. Uh, let me see here, oh, like uh, oh. 12, 13, 14. Yes, uh, I it, think issue number 31, um, where uh-huh. Snake Eyes is in his cabin and he's attacked by Firefly and Destro. Um, yeah, that is. I think it was that was published. I believe in mid 1985 or so. That is not only my favorite issue of the entire series, um, but that is my favorite comic book 
of all time of anything. Um, in fact, I still have it. I brought it out with me right here next to me for the recording, for inspiration. <laughs> I, re I read this thing so much that uh, like the cover is almost disintegrated. But um, th that story, I would just read it over and over again because it was this fantastic story of just you know survival and, and snake eyes being ambushed and everything he did to to survive but um yeah what, 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 that sorry. was a great story yes. no what, you're right what, what he was uh, he was kind of recuperating from his adventures when we learned about some of his history mm -hmm. and uh he was having some issues so he's just he's got this cabin in the woods him and his pet wolf um timber and timber yep i couldn't remember if that was it exactly and so yeah he's there and then i guess destro and firefly decide they're gonna go kill him at the same time uh airborne and spirit, spirit mm -hmm. yeah are, are going to go and check on him as well and so this is everyone's trying to find each other and yeah it was a it was an amazing thing and at the end destro and firefly kind of limp away um after blowing up snake eyes's cavern mm -hmm. or cabin um, and so, yeah, I guess the wolf was kind of the only, it was like, oh, is Snake Eyes dead? And you, you, you find out rapidly that he's not, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, that was a, that was a, and, and one of those things that was great, cause it was just an interlude story, mm -hmm. um, in between a bunch of other stuff, but it was a, it was a very great moving. And again, there's, there's tactics. And I remember, I remember Firefly, I think this was the, the episode where Firefly was annoyed that they couldn't keep going, but Destro was like, no, we need to get out of here before we get beat up. Or maybe that was in the in the swamps, uh, the Everglades. One of those, Firefly was really wanting to keep going, and the other guy was like, "Look, we've got as much of a win as we're going to get. It's time for us to take off." <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. let's talk a little bit about um, Cobra or the enemy Cobra itself. Okay. Because I thought this was a really different and interesting way to go. Um, so you have Cobra Commander and his legion of troops, and we're going to talk a little bit about that in a minute. But you also had Destro. Mm -hmm. And so Destro was in the toy line. He was sort of the guy who's providing all these tanks and guns and missiles and bombs. He was their armament guy. Yes. And in the comics he was as well. But he was almost as much of a foil to, to Cobra Commander as he was, uh, you know, allies with him. Yes, I I always thought that that was an interest, interesting dynamic their relationship had. Um, the Destro to Cobra Commander was not um, an annoying saboteur like Starscream to Megatron. That always bugged right. me. Why would you keep <laughs> Starscream around Megatron? He he you know he undermines you at every every tack. But Destro was more like he would challenge Cobra Commander. It seemed he he, he seems smarter in a way uh, and he had his own resources at his disposal but they did work together but he didn't always seem to like it and so they kind of balanced each other sometimes it would seem yeah there have been a couple of times where destro had this plan to basically remove cobra commander and then mm -hmm. found out he had to essentially save him because Ultimately, it would have ruined his his bigger plan. Yes, yes, exactly. So he he was. Uh, that's one of the things I always appreciated. He wasn't a stupid, dumb underling. They, you know, him and, and Storm Shadow and even Zartan. They they kept them intelligent f for a while. Um, yeah. One of the the things that always saddened me. It seemed like as time went by, it seemed like the underlings became smarter, and Cobra Commander was written dumber and dumber. Uh, yeah, but we'll, we'll, he was certainly he certainly suffered from that uh that particular fault yeah but i i'm sure that we'll get into that as we continue with the, <laughs> the comics and the the animated show yeah. and such 
So one other thing to kind of talk about Destro, and Destro had a huge Achilles heel, though, and what was that? Or should I say, who was that? The Baroness. (laughs) Indeed, indeed, the Baroness, uh, who was created kind of out of whole cloth for the comic book, uh, and then became such a popular character that she got her own uh, action figure out of it. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, I always thought that Destro and Baroness's relationship was was fascinating, even more than Snake Eyes and Scarlet. In fact, I, I have to admit, I was oblivious of Snake Eyes and Scarlet's um, relationship at all because I came in at 28 right after it was kind of established. Uh, but mm-hmm. I was oblivious to it until like the 50s and 60s of the series. But uh, Destro and Baroness um, right off the bat kind of had this strange uh, rom- quasi-romantic you know, relationship and such. Um, I seem to recall a scene where she's tied to the front of a his tank and and uh, I can't remember uh, that might have been later in the comic book series or early I can't remember exactly but I just remember um, he and her had this um, really fascinating thing going on together that to, as a kid I was like can two villains you know have a relationship like this that's yeah. so weird <laughs> exactly so I want to talk just real briefly about Cobra itself because so you have this ruthless terrorist organization, right? Mm-hmm. You're the writer. You're Larry Hama. So how do you write this up? So at the beginning, they're always just doing bad guy stuff, taking over countries, stealing things, just being gen- generic bad guys. But as time goes on, you know, we need to give them a base. We need to uh, kind of give them motivation and, and sort of talk about it. And the way they went with that was really interesting. So do you remember the city they were based in? Springfield. Springfield, exactly, yes. which is just pre, uh, pre-Simpsons, and I thought, you know, a brilliant, uh, brilliant ploy. So Cobra, of all places, started off as, well, Cobra Commander was a used car salesman and created a pyramid scheme that essentially created the funding for Cobra. Yeah, that was kind of an interesting backstory. <laughs> And ultimately, they would take over. They took over this entire town of Springfield. So everybody in Springfield is is a Cobra person. Um, So if you just happen to drive up there, you know the postman works for Cobra. Everybody's Cobra. Mm -hmm. And there have been a few times when GI Joe has either stumbled upon Springfield or snuck into Springfield and had to deal with the fact that it's just Cobra, Cobra, Cobra. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But again, it's a town, some town in United in the United States. (laughs) Yeah. Somewhere, but yes, exactly. I I always thought that was brilliant of them to just have this entire town uh, covertly as their base of operations, right in front of everybody. <laughs> yep, exactly. <laughs> Nobody ever notices all these hiss tanks rolling in and no. out. <laughs> no. Well, they they had the uh, what was it? Cobra had the Arco Circus and the you know. Oh, always, that's right. They made all these anagrams of Cobra, and they you know just make the signage, and no one ever caught on that that was actually mm-hmm. you know a cover for Cobra <laughs> stuff. <laughs> yeah, I remember that because there was one where they were moving troops, and it was like Arco Movers or something. So yeah. it was like a, a, a just a regular big rig and stuff. Yeah, yeah. And, and I remember the Arco Circus um, in yes. one of them. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that was so funny. Now, the, the base and, of... Oh, please continue. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, and then eventually uh, they got their own island. Ah, yeah, that's, where, that's exactly <laughs> what I was going to say. Issue number 40, um, when they uh, tricked G.I. Joe into detonating a whole bunch of ordnance under the sea to trigger a fault line and raise up the small landmass, which they... I thought, again, this is probably 6th, uh, 7th, 8th grade for me. Um, they raised this island up, and they Cobra was instantly ready with all these diplomats at all the, these different embassies to go in. As soon as that island reached the surface, they went in and made Cobra Island recognized as a sovereign nation. 
Um, right, just as G.I. Joe was ready to assault it. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. And they actually were on the island, and they, they, they had to stop and turn around with their tails between their legs, like the last page of that issue. Um, I thought that was brilliant that they yes. uh, you know, did that. <laughs> That's one of my it's favorite so, storylines. <laughs> so unexpected, you know, because they're, they're getting ready to destroy it, and... Uh, and yeah, no, uh, no luck there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> the law beat them. Yes, yeah, they used uh, it to their advantage. Uh, I always thought that was that's again is one of my favorite storylines in there, <laughs> just because they used, you know, they they basically tricked everyone to do nothing technically illegal at that point, but they they tricked everyone and they used the law to their own advantage to pull off what they yes. wanted. <laughs> Those were my favorite moments. <laughs> yes, and actually, you know, GI Joe had a hidden base too. Do you remember what uh, the what pit. their base was? The pit. The pit. Oh, and where was the pit at? Um, Fort, not Fort Do you remember flag. what the base was for? Um, I'm a little sketchy on, on that uh, one. Um, they again, were chaplain assistants. That's right. That's right. They were all chaplain assistants. Because <laughs> yes. um, I remember um, the beginning of my favorite I- issue, number 31, uh, Fred Seven, I believe, one of the Fred line of clone oh, guys, yeah. uh, the Crimson Guard. Um, Fred was um, assigned to watch the base that G.I. Joe was at. And uh, at the very beginning of that issue, uh, there's they're just rolling all these tanks out the front gate. <laughs> and these kids are there going, man, these chaplain's assistants sure have a lot of tanks. Yes, I <laughs> remember that that was hilarious so yeah underneath this chaplain assistant which i can't even imagine is a is a position in the army but there was the huge multi-story multi-level base that gi joe worked out of and uh cobra eventually discovers this and sends this massive onslaught against them and so what was gi joe's brilliant plan to defend uh, do you remember? Uh, well, I remember. I don't know if it was their plan, but I know at the end of the issue, it implodes and it collapses upon itself. Oh, actually, that is that is a little bit farther down. Yes, I'm you're sorry. right. Okay. What was the Before plan? Before that, though, Hasbro had a G.I. Joe base they wanted to sell. Yes. And so, so the comic had to somehow incorporate this. So what they did was they built this base and then raised it up on the hydraulic vehicle lift so it it kind of went above the surface. And so then Cobra comes and they fight it out and they blow the base up and they leave thinking they've won. But really the GI Joe base was all the levels below. <laughs> so they got to kind of check off two boxes there, but you're right. Later on the pit does implode and they end up, I think somewhere in the Nevada desert or something at the end of that. Yes. Yeah. And uh, I don't want to jump too far ahead in the conversation, but uh, I, I do, I do remember um, those, those issues where the, the pit, uh, implodes and Destro and Cobra Commander are presumed dead, stuck at the bottom of this huge pile of rubble underground. That reading those issues, that was, those are another couple of issues I read over and over again, and had that feeling as a kid reading these of, I can't believe they're doing this. I can't believe this just happened. Yes. Oh my goodness! Uh, it was just <laughs> wow. It was such a thrill to read and reread that storyline. Definitely. Now, later on, as the toys got a little more crazy, uh, you had things like Serpentor, who was the resurrected uh, seven or eight, you know, great military minds of the of the ancient times. And, and the big problem in the comic book was, like, how do you fit a third egomaniac <laughs> bad guy into this? Yeah. You know, and he eventually ousts Cobra Commander and... And yeah, and then you've got ninjas 
everywhere. Yes. In, in, in fact, didn't it eventually, uh, the comic book series, eventually get retitled something like Snake Eyes and the Ninja Force or something for yes. a while? Actually, for like in the 130s or okay. something, it did indeed because it was all ninjas all the time. Yeah. So they eventually, when, yeah, when they started introducing that in the 60s and 70s of the issues, yeah, they eventually let that keep going and, and kind of take over. But um, I, I'm sorry, I, I'm subconsciously, I realize I'm subconsciously trying to divert the conversation away from Serpentor. Or understood. As I understand, as I, I mentioned it, he who must not be named. Um, right. <laughs> to, to, and m- and the good news is they did eventually sort of oust him and get rid of him. Yes. Um, it was near the end of the run, so there was only so much yeah. that uh, that Larry could do. But I know that I know that he was particularly unhappy with a lot of the requirements for well we've made this new toy and now we've got to make it somehow fit into this story exactly and serpentor must have been around the 60s of the the run um around uh, issue f- yeah right around issue 60 i believe is about the time it's serpentor was was uh, unveiled um and i believe that was to me i was about seventh grade and even as a seventh grader I had this feeling of, oh, no, they just jumped the shark. Yeah. Um, and to me, that was when to me, that's when things changed from that grounding in reality to, you know what? Let's go and collect the DNA from five or six different historical figures, make a man who's going to be a military genius and have him dress like a giant yellow snake. <laughs> sure, that's. That's a great idea. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and and it doesn't get any better after that for the most part. You start fighting in space. And, and then, of course, you hit the, the early 90s and like the covers change dramatically. Suddenly Scarlet's uh, costume is no longer a unitard with, you know, normal looking clothing. No, she's wearing almost like a superhero outfit. And, of course, Baroness was always wearing a cat suit, so you can't complain about that. But, um, yeah, it... I think for the last five issues, they did a pretty good job of tying things up. But for the last, but before that, the next twenty are are pretty much everything you really didn't like about late eighties, early nineties comics. Mm-hmm. Lots of little pouches all yes. over, and too many lines, and just just, ugh, just too much of everything. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So now, uh, unfortunately, we'll have to close the discussion on the comics, otherwise we won't be able to talk about anything else. Yeah. But you can tell, certainly tell where our loyalties lie. <laughs> uh, but around the same time as the comics was the G.I. Joe Real American Hero cartoon series, which likewise was extremely successful. Um, yes. And completely unlike the comics. <laughs> D- Yes, again. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Now, uh, uh, as, I, I, as I recall, the uh, G.I. Joe animated series, um, they, they first did like a test launch of like a one-week miniseries, yep. it seemed. Yep. And, and um, then that's like almost a test market launch or something. And then before the actual real series. And, and I remember um, the, when that week that the miniseries aired um, – it, it would air like right when I got off school and um, I had like uh, my bus stop was like 12 minutes away from my house. I had this long walk. And I remember the week that that miniseries uh, aired, I made that 12 minute walk 
back to my house, like in like three and a half minutes flat <laughs> every single day, all week to you know watch as much of each episode as I possibly could. And oh my goodness, uh, it did not disappoint me when when I when I saw it. Yeah, especially that um, first. It was like a four, like you said, a four or five episode, almost like a mini series. And I forget the yes. plot, other than they were trying to collect these special crystals to power something. It, it was it was a weather control That's machine, right. I believe. That's right. And looking back, huh? Yeah. <laughs> but uh, at the time, cool. Exactly. Now, a uh, couple of couple of issues with the cartoon, of course, and and anyone who's familiar with it will be immediately identifiable. First of all, everyone had laser guns, uh, and whose yes. side you were determined. You know, it's like lightsabers. What color laser gun you get your beam is is you know blue for the good of guys, course. red for the bad guys. Yes. Uh, and nobody ever died. Any plane that blew up, no. there was always a parachute coming out, and uh, nobody ever really got shot. Yes, it had the A-team sensibilities, where anytime something explodes, you're going to see someone jump out of the way or a little parachute come out at the last exactly. minute. Exactly. Although, there was an episode uh, called Worlds Without End. It was a two-part episode. Steeler, Grunt, and Clutch go into an alternate universe, and they find the skeletons of their counterparts in that world. Oh, my goodness. I remember yeah. that barely, and, uh, and so that's kind of the closest thing you'll get to death, I think, in the uh, in the show. Yes, there was another episode where um, I believe. Oh no, I was thinking of it before our conversation. I believe it was it was shipwreck. Um, either went home on leave or something, and he went to this location where there was other people he knew and other Joes. Can't remember exactly why, but but people started melting, oh. um, and, and shipwreck was losing his mind, freaking out. Um, there's one where ro- I remember Roadblock. Uh, it was a two part episode as well, but Roadblock Roadblock um, comes out of this car wash uh, in driving this car, drives up to shipwreck, and says, "You know, it was really hot in there." <laughs> Starts oh, yes. like melt. His eye yeah. comes out and everything. As he- and you know, shipwreck, you know, kind of goes crazy. And I remember as a kid. With that, you know, and then they like, you know, it ends their cliffhanger. Find out tomorrow what happens. And I remember the rest of that evening just sitting there racking my brain, you know, with pencil and paper trying to write down what could yeah. this be? What is yeah. going on? And trying <laughs> to figure out. But but that was because of the lack of death or any consequence to their actions. Seeing these people melt wasn't only freaky enough, but it was also, you know, people are melting and dying in this episode. What's going on? It was so different. I wasn't sent, I wasn't desensitized to yeah. it. And it, so it really stood out. Yeah. And, and this also, I mean, alternate universes and melting people shows you that there was a high, high fantasy level uh, on yes. this episode. Yes, yes. Opposite of the early comics. Definitely. Yes. yes. And we, we couldn't talk about the cartoon without mentioning the uh, the little, at the end, public safety lessons that you would get. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it's rock and yeah, roll. So Hi, kids. Two kids doing something they probably shouldn't, you know, crossing a street without looking first or whatever. Yeah. Stumble across. Contemplating graffiti. Yeah, exactly. Stumble across <laughs> a couple of G.I. Joes who tell them that they shouldn't do that and tell them why. And and now they and know. knowing is half the battle. <laughs> I never tell you what the other half is, which I'm guessing is dual. No. But <laughs> <laughs> there is an important yeah. other half. But, <laughs> but yeah, and so knowing is half the battle has become its own sort of little meme in there as well. Yes, yes. Uh, now, oh, but yes. that wasn't actually the only G.I. Joe 
animated series after after that canceled sometime in the mid 80s 86 i guess uh there mm-hmm. were up other shows uh 89 tried to redo it uh there was a gi joe extreme which i never i never saw but it sounds like you know the equivalent of the 90s comic books gi joe yeah I didn't. I never checked that out either. Um, but I did one day. It must have been in '87, maybe. Uh, my whole family was just sitting around the TV on the weekend, and uh, this GI Joe movie came on. Oh! And I, I didn't even know it was in production or anything. And it was a feature-length movie. It was probably direct-to-video or whatever the equivalent was at the time. But um, it actually had a near-death in it and some other things that kind of altered, had um, had consequences for the continuity going forward. Um, did you did you ever watch that? I didn't. About that, that time, that was my junior year of high school, so I had phased out of it by then. Um, I do know okay. it was originally going to be a theatrical release, but the Transformers mm-hmm. movie didn't do what they wanted it to do. And so that's ah. why the G.I. Joe movie became a direct-to-video. Uh, okay. okay. Well, yeah, in that movie, um, again, you know, just sitting there watching it on a Saturday afternoon with the whole family, I was mesmerized because you know, uh, Duke uh, takes a spear to the chest. Oh, that's right. Duke got killed. Uh-huh. And they... Yep, they were originally going to kill off the character of Duke and have Flint become the new leader of the team, but they they wussed out at the last minute. And I guess like in the final scene, there's just like this voiceover of "Congratulations, Joes, you saved the day." Oh, by the way, Duke's gonna be all right. <laughs> and they just added this narration in at the end. How funny! But uh, yeah, but um, in that as well, it's revealed that um, Cobra is not just a terrorist organization, but it's actually this extension of this underground race, ancient race called Cobra Law. And Cobra Commander was their emissary sent to keep an eye on mankind and keep Cobra Law's tendrils in humanity. And it turns out that Cobra Commander is actually this deformed, multi-eyed being from below the surface. And at the end of that movie, he literally gets turned into a giant cobra. And um, the the they I believe they made some animated episodes of something. Maybe this wasn't uh, – maybe the actual animated series had not ended yet because I remember – watching a couple episodes of the animated series after that and Baroness, Dr. Mindbender and someone else were literally chasing this giant cobra around with a burlap sack trying to <laughs> catch him and reinstate him as Cobra Commander and that was when I turned the TV off for the last time. Definitely, <laughs> on definitely. The, on the, yeah. Wow, that's uh... so back to the comics then, right? <laughs> <laughs> Suddenly raising an <laughs> yes, island please. doesn't seem as ludicrous as, as no, no. being tapped into a Cthulhu-like cult. <laughs> uh, in the 2000s, uh, you know, 2005 and whatnot, there was a handful of different G.I. Joe uh, remakes. There's Sigma-6 where they're like super tech and, and whatnot. And then there was another one mm-hmm. where the, there was like four G.I. Joe guys who were, we know the truth about Cobra, and so we're going to try and stop it. Uh, I saw that one. I don't remember what it was, unfortunately, but I saw it on Netflix, and it was pretty cool, but unfortunately it didn't... Uh, it didn't go long enough to where any of the plot lines they opened up were resolved. Oh, was that? Um, oh no, was that GI Joe Renegades? Yes, that was it. Renegades. I I watched that last year. I found it and watched it. I I was really saddened when I got to the end 
and realized that it wasn't going to continue. Yes. I thought th- I thought they were onto something there, and it had potential. It did, because, yeah, they were very uh, A-team-like. Mm-hmm. Didn't they have, like, a van? Uh, yes. They'd stolen a Cobra headquarter bus thing, and, and they were yeah, going around the yeah. country busting Cobra and trying to clear their names and... And, uh, yeah, and Cobra Commander was like the owner of a Walmart yeah. an, a- analog type business, yeah. you know, this huge company. And uh, uh, the way they introduced Destro, I thought was fantastic because they um, they gave this um, this entomology to what the term Destro means in this culture. And um, it was someone who disappoints or lets down the clan. And so Cobra Commander actually you know attaches the metal mask to Destro's oh, face and says, you, know, you yeah. are now my... Yeah, as punishment, says you are now a Destro. And um, and the way Zartan was introduced, I thought they were doing a really good job with that. Yeah, I agree. And and uh, I guess it just didn't catch on well enough to really to really go further. Yeah. But it really goes to show you, as we kind of wrap this up, how mm-hmm. how flexible and just how much of a, you know, it, people our age... If you start talking GI Joe, you know boys that were that were of the you know middle school, elementary age around the the early to mid eighties. I mean, you're going to hear, well, like you've just listened to an hour of gushing and excitement. <laughs> <laughs> it is true. <laughs> yes. Well, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. Growing up, you know, every every penny of my allowance, every Christmas, every birthday, it was always you know GI Joe stuff. That's what I spent all my energy, all of my disposable income on, you know, uh, and and just seeing these remakes, these new series and stuff just takes me back just right to that time um, and the gushing and Definitely. So, um, uh, you know, I personally think that it's worth reading a lot of these comics because there are some really great stories. Um, I think it takes a lot of nostalgia to watch the cartoon again. Um, yeah, <laughs> a lot of nostalgia and a lot of, uh, you know, oxycodone yeah. or, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it, yeah, you, you, you have to, um, you have to endure it these days when you go back and look yeah, at it. Definitely. But the comics, they still hold up for the yes. most part. Certainly the early ones I, do. I, I, there was a, I believe there was a another short miniseries uh, on, I believe, Cartoon Network a couple years ago. They were like these uh, set of uh, half dozen or so 10-minute episodes made for adults, made for people our oh, age. Wow. Um, and they were supposed to be grounded. You can find them on YouTube sometimes. Uh, that's where I watched them. And But um, they're... There's these short vignettes made to be very realistic, you know, the way the warfare is done and the consequences and everything, but, um, you know, still fantastical. But um, they're, again, like these short 10-minute vignettes. And so that's a very dis- – it tells one story, but it came across as very disjointed to me. Mm. And I, you know, I was like, I want to enjoy this. And it just seemed a little too much like uh, there were too many jumps in the story to keep it going that way. And um, But it is floating around on YouTube out there if you can track it down. Oh, cool. Excellent. Mm-hmm. Well, Chaz, I, I've just been looking forward to this, and I'm excited that you could join me. Do you have any uh, last G.I. Joe thoughts or anything that you wanted that we didn't cover that we should have? Um, the only other thing that we didn't get into, which I'm probably glad we didn't, was the, the other inevitable question that always comes up of, did you ever, you and your friends, dress up and play as G.I. Joe characters? So, <laughs> I, you know, I didn't, but... One of the things that I've been recently interested in, and actually you know this, is I've been trying to get some rep prop replicas of different things. I came mm. across, you know, like say uh, Han Solo's blaster pistol and and uh, the oh. the pulse pistol from Farscape. You know, things that sci-fi and fantasy and you know, like James Bond's PPK. Um, 
because I'm going to have a little display about that. And so one of the things that I did pick up, which I showed you a picture of, was my uh, kit for Tom Servo. So I built my own Tom Servo. But uh, Which is amazing, by the way. Yes. yes. And uh, while I was looking uh, at the – there's a replica prop forum website that I get all this information from. So there are people who, much like the people who dress up as stormtroopers, there are people who dress up as G.I. Joe characters. And mm-hmm. – uh, that's kind of neat, especially some of those Cobra commanders with the helmets and whatnot. But these guys take mm-hmm. it a step further. They actually recreate some of those play sets in life size. So some of the little smaller <laughs> play sets. So like there's one like a rocket or missile launcher with, a, you know, the missile launcher is kind of a box or whatever. So you can actually, you know, dress up as a, as the character and have yourself, you know, a picture of you playing in an appropriately sized replica of some of those toys. <laughs> That's my new favorite thing ever. Yes, definitely. <laughs> um, oh, yes. we, we didn't mention after the Marvel comic ended, there were other comics that came out uh, much, much later. In fact, uh, was it Devil's Due or IDW? One of them picked up the mantle in the early 2000s. And one of the things that I liked about that was they started with issue 156. The Marvel comic ended in 155. And the base was being decommissioned and basically G.I. Joe was done. Um, and so they picked up 156, you know, five years, ten years later, and kind of kept the storyline running from there, which I thought was pretty cool. I read uh, probably a half dozen of those before just kind of fading in interest. That was the thing that slipped my mind a, a moment ago was asking if you ever uh, when uh, was it Dark Horse even relaunched a series? Um, but I, I, do, I do remember in the mid 2000s or so. Yes, yeah. they launched a new G.I. Joe series for a while. I never picked it up. I was going to pick up the trade paperbacks with the collections. Still haven't got around to it, but I was always curious to go back and read those to find out if they were worth reading. Yeah, I not. definitely read like the first half dozen and I love the fact that it kind of picked up and took off from there. Um, and then, yeah, there was something. They did actually have some trade paperbacks, but there was a lot of shuffling of who had the rights. Uh, so one company stopped mm-hmm. and another company picked it up. And, and so it was just too hard for me to follow. And, you know, adult uh, adulthood took okay. over. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Darn responsibility. Exactly. <laughs> cool. Well, Chaz, again, I really appreciate you joining me for this. This has been very exciting. <laughs> Oh, this yeah, this has been a, a, to be able to talk about GI Joe um, in you know a conversation that's not just my wife <laughs> rolling um, her eyes, listening, uh, <laughs> patient. Yes, being patient with me. This has been an absolute pleasure um, to be able to come on and just you know talk about this subject that was a part of my life you know for so many Definitely. years. Definitely. Well, Chaz, where can people find you if they want to hear more about your awesomeness? <laughs> well, uh, I'll take. Take that how you will. Um, but uh, you can usually find me, um, instead of G.I. Joe stuff, uh, I sneak it in whenever I can. But typically, uh, you can find me talking about board games um, and uh, news, reviews, and commentary on board game culture at pairofdiceparadise.com. Um, I have a YouTube channel as well, which is youtube.com slash pairofdiceparadise, all one word. And on Twitter at Dice Paradise. Fantastic. Well, again, thank you very much for joining. I'm Eric Dewey. And I've been Chaz Marler. And you've been listening to Inverse Genius. Thank you very much. That's it for this episode of the Inverse Genius Podcast. The Inverse Genius Podcast is licensed under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 License. Thank you.